0: There were distinct circles that I think these figures tended to emanate around or were affiliated with, or, you know, they, it's really incredible how smaller the design world was even then. A lot of them knew each other or knew of each other or knew people that knew them, or it's really incredible.
1: Welcome to Arcanek Sessions One-to-One. I'm Amelia, and this week I have a cold, and I'm speaking with Eileen Kwon and Bryn Smith. Editors of 20 over 80, conversations on a lifetime in architecture and design. 20 over 80 is the antidote to those breathless, overhyped lists you've seen, trying to predict which baby-faced youngster will be the next big thing in their creative practice. With unique interviews accompanied by research profiles, 20 over 80 not only reflects on the lifetime of work that came to define today's design and architecture, but also creates a kind of oral history of 20th century design. Eileen Kwan and Bryn Smith, thank you both so much for joining us on One to One. And thank you for putting together this fantastic book, 20 Over 80, um, a selection of interviews with 20 of of the foremost practitioners in design and architecture. And it's such a refreshing book to have, especially when we have such a huge emphasis on newness and exciting beginners and young people working in the industry where there's a lot of promise, but there isn't the simple wealth of experience to back up any of the type of wisdom that has been catered out. So thank you both for putting together the book. And I wanted to ask, first of all, that we have, of course, 20 over 80. It's in the title. So there are 20 interviews of people over 80 in their design fields. But aside from being at least 80 years old, what were some of the core criteria guiding which people you chose to profile in the book?
0: Right. So obviously there was the age, but I think it was really important for us to highlight figures that, you know, not only met the age requirement, but also had worked for much of that period, or in many cases, we're still actively working. I would say the vast majority of figures that we profiled for this book are still producing original projects, um, which is really incredible. And all of them are very historically significant as well. In terms of how we drafted up the names and made the selection, we really tried to portray the whole spectrum of the design industry through a diversity of fields. So that covers graphic design, industrial and product design, architecture, textiles, interiors. But it was also really important for us to include a few design thinkers as well. People like Ralph Kaplan and Jane Thompson, who have worked as editors, curators, content strategists, and for really significant institutions like MoMA, Industrial Design Magazine, and the Eames office. I think, you know, Britt and I met at the Design Criticism MFA program at the School of Visual Arts here in New York. And it was really exciting because the focus of the program was on contemporary design history. So I think we kind of loosely defined that as, you know, 20th century to the present day. And one of the takeaway lessons that I I, I got from doing that program was that contemporary design history still feels really new and underdeveloped. And I think by focusing on these really significant, enduring figures, it was kind of our way of, you know, trying to map out that, that really dense period ourselves through these personal personal narratives, reaching out to these folks that haven't been talked to in a while, but still have so many rich and untold stories. I mean, it was really an amazing experience.
2: Yeah. And just to add to that, I think exactly what Eileen said, that, you know, we were really interested in that broad view of design because that was sort of our training in school. And it was something that was really important to us. So we tried to stay really clearly within the boundaries of design per se, but, you know, we at times considered people who were maybe more on the fine art spectrum. But I think in the end, we ended up really with people who were kind of represented all these different categories within design to really kind of paint a broader picture of the field at large. And, um, you know, sometimes our network came into play as well, people that we knew or or were able to connect with. But generally, it was sort of that broad lens. And I think even the age was a little bit challenging as well, although 80 seems like a really clear cutoff point. You know, it took us a couple years to write this book. So in the case of mm-hmm. like Ricardo Scafidio, uh, when we interviewed him, he was not quite 80, but he has since turned 80. So even in that, there was a little bit of, you know, fluctuation in terms of uh of kind of getting people at the right moment
0: right we kind of we looked at the calendar and we were like oh the book's not gonna be out by then they will be 80 (laughs) (laughs) which kind of worked out nicely but you know just speaking about the different disciplines involved again many of these figures have kind of cycled through so many different mediums and scales of work throughout these you know five six decade careers so you know we tried to keep the mix as diverse as possible, but even within each of their careers, there's just so many different chapters that they've been through and evolved their career through. It's it's really incredible. So we kind of put them all in the same mix. We didn't try to categorize it by any particular way. All the folks are, are just listed alphabetically because they're all equally important and significant and incredible. And yeah, once again, we're just so grateful to have had the opportunity to meet them and that they were open to it and and generous in in sharing their personal histories with us.
1: And what I really enjoyed in reading a few of the interviews is how a notion of success, of how each designer or architect kind of both conceives of that for themselves, but also how they might have been put into history as being successful, how those two things might differ from one another, but also that over an 80-year lifespan, someone can have success in the first half of that, and another person can have success in the last half of it. And some people can always think that their biggest success is just around the corner and they just need to keep working at it. And part of that comes through even though the interviews are in no way regular. They're all unique to each person interviewed. When you started out putting together the list of people you wanted to interview for this book, was that always the intent from the beginning to have unique interviews for each person or to rather have more of a perhaps research-oriented start where you would be asking the same questions to each person?
2: Yeah, I think it definitely was something we thought a lot about at the beginning of the process. It probably would have been a lot easier had we just asked (laughs) everyone the same questions. And I think a few times Eileen and I were like, why don't we just ask everyone the same 10 questions? That would have been really nice. But we were, you know, again, I think we were really, really interested in the field and the stories and like collecting this this history as well. And so the research part of it was really important to us too. And so we spent a lot of time researching before we met with anyone or before we conducted each interview to kind of cater the questions to, you know, to their careers or to things they were interested in or things they were working on. So research was really a huge part of, of crafting that and kind of having that narrative rather than just asking the same questions. I mean, there are certainly themes throughout and things that we asked everyone, even if we phrased it a little bit differently. And I think we were even surprised too. sometimes those like, you know, what advice would you give yourself? Some of the really like basic general questions often yielded really wonderful responses, but we kind of took it on ourselves to have that challenge of of writing questions for each person individually.
0: Right. And I think, you know, when we were drafting up this list, it was almost, it was kind of unreal that we were actually allowed to have this assignment and carry it out and completely shape the list from beginning to end. I mean, Princeton Architectural Press totally entrusted us to draft up the list, reach out to these folks. And it was really kind of refreshing to have that level of agency. And so, you know, we're both relatively young and in the beginning of our careers. And it was just such an amazing chance that we were really like all in. We're like, all right, let's do this research. Be really insane about it. (laughs) Think of personalized questions. But, you know, obviously there were like in thinking about how, okay, most of these people were born at around the same, you know, decade. And just thinking about everything that happened from like the 1920s on, or like, well, there's so much social change that happened in the past, you know, eight or nine decades, most of them experienced the Great Depression in some, in some regard, World War One and Two. I mean, it's just insane to think about these whole chapters of history and how it's affected each of their lives, whether they're in the States or abroad, or, you know. Working in a different field, so there were specific, you know, certain framing questions that we asked, you know, in regards to technology, design education, the fact that some fields like industrial design really emerged in the post-war period in a really big way um, that made something like design journalism a, a feasible profession. So I think there were there were a lot of historical threads that we looked to, but also in approaching these legendary figures, we just felt it was a necessity to really know everything that they had done before even trying to
1: talk to them. <laughs> right. Because of course you're also interviewing people who have already been interviewed a ton before right. or at least have already been written about, at least perhaps during the climaxes of their careers, if not the entirety of them.
2: Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think the the pressure to have a good interview was really high too. I mean for I think in every case, um Eileen, correct me if I'm wrong, but <laughs> you know, we didn't like we didn't have follow up interviews with people. So we kind of had the one shot generally and, and people were really generous with their time. So we wanted to for them to know that we had done our research too. So we also, you know, yeah, read previous interviews and tried to get a sense of things that they liked talking about or didn't, or like, you know, points that we could maybe push them as well. But yeah, that, that pressure of speaking to someone in their position that you look up to so much is, is both exciting and terrifying.
0: Yeah. Just to add one more thing. Um, it was exciting, too. I mean, that that was kind of what we studied. And this is the kind of dream project that we were hoping to work towards when we were at in our in the Decrit program, as I like to call it. And in doing that kind of background research, it was interesting because a lot of these figures are known for certain chapters in their career. And to kind of go back and revisit their work and try to map out the other, you know, parts or chapters of their lives that maybe haven't received as much press for whatever reason or you know, that people just didn't know about. I think that was really personally interesting for us, too, is to kind of just learn more about each of these figures.
1: One of the uh, commonalities that arises in the answers nearing the end of each interview, actually, is between Michael Graves and Stanley Tigerman, when they're both asked, basically, what is the dream project? What is your ideal project? And they both respond like the next project, like almost verbatim. They almost say exactly this, have the exact same response. And it's it's this idea of like, even at that age, they still can only think that the next thing is going to be the best thing they're ever going to have done because they're constantly putting that much effort and that much expectation into each project. I'm wondering what other commonalities or kind of shared responses you saw arising within the interviews, both as you were doing them and then once you had the collection at the end.
0: Right. Right. I think longevity is definitely the theme of the stories in this book. I mean, each of these figures has such a personal drive and such a high level of passion for what they do. And that really came across, I think, in our discussions and hopefully in, you know, in the final interviews that we printed. Kind of going along with that urge to, to just hunt for the next project, that hunger, I think a lot of our interviewees expressed a real distaste for retirement or even kind of turned off by the concept of it. I think Milton Glaser was said some had a really great story about how, you know, that was invented by the economy to stimulate the economy. It's it's a wash. It's not, you know, he just wants to continue to work every single day until his very last day and I think that's really inspiring. And another one of our interviewees, Jane Thompson, it was funny when we met with her 3 years ago. She was telling us about how she had the last profile she had done for a book was for a book called The Third Act. And it was all about, you know, older figures that, that are still working and talking about retirement and, you know, kind of the conclusions of their careers. And And Jane was like, you know, I, I was interviewed for that like 15 years ago and I still haven't retired and I don't wish to. And
2: I think that is just so inspiring and and, and encouraging. I was just going to sort of second that theme of drive. I mean, I think that was so powerful throughout all the stories. You know, you take someone like Seymour Quast, who gets up and goes to his desk every day at 7 a.m., regardless of whether he has a client job or not, and then paints on the weekends. And so many of the people we profiled, yeah, there's just this insatiable hunger to keep working and to make new projects and pursue new projects and always, you know, Bob Gill pitched us to do the cover of the book while we were interviewing him, (laughs) you know, to try to just to try to keep working in any capacity. But it really kind of came from within and was really inspiring in that sense, too, just that, you know, keep going, keep working.
1: So are there figures that you would have hoped to include in the book, but weren't able to?
0: Oh, yeah. Gosh, there were so many. I I mean, our list was so long. I think there were, you know, there were several kind of very practical factors that helped us narrow down that list. Um, you know, some folks just had decided to stop giving interviews for whatever reason a few years ago, or some people were were out of reach, or there were so many that we wanted to include. But Again, we wanted to strike the balance between the different specializations and and also gender was really important to us. We were very conscious as female practitioners in the design field that it's an underrepresented, you know, part of, of the community. And so it was really important for us to feature and portray as many women that worked successfully in that era and and had visible roles in the community. It was really important for us to include them as well. But gosh, there were so many names that we dreamt up and we did have to make some tough selections.
1: So specifically regarding the interviews that are with architects in the book, which are about half of the interviews, architecture is constantly referred to as a kind of long game profession. One where if you're 50 years old or middle-aged and you're kind of just getting into that point of professional practice where you're own firm is kind of lifting off the ground, that scene is pretty normal. It takes a while to establish something successful, but that might not actually be the case for other design practices. I'm wondering whether or not through the course of these interviews, you had any insight as to why architecture is like that, why it takes that long to establish a successful practice. Yeah,
0: I would say on a very practical level, you're working in a larger scale. You know, it's a large scale medium that involves attention to product interiors. You know, it's kind of referred to as the Gesamtkunstwerk or a Total Work of Art by the Bauhaus and, and other schools of thought. I think it just takes longer to complete an architectural project, a whole structure or building. I mean, growing your career or your firm to the size and scale that you're able to win commissions and, and enter competitions and, and win things like that. I guess that's my very practical guess at, at why it's a long term field.
2: Yeah, I wish, I wish I knew the answer to that as well. My uh, my partner is an architect, so I have a, a personal insight into it as well. But yeah, I don't know that I have the answer to that. I think the interesting or upside to some of the conversations we had with architects was something you touched about it earlier in the interview, just that your career can kind of take all these different twists and turns and that that can be okay. I mean, I think it can be challenging as well. Like you look at someone like Michael Graves, who was a little bit wistful about like his position in the field and how he was viewed, even though he was working right up until the end. Or you look at someone like Ricardo Scafidio, who almost left the field early on, but then kind of had a change of heart or was reinvigorated. So I think these kind of pivotal moments kind of make up a career. And I don't know, I don't know if that's any different in architecture, but just that what Eileen said, and that it's projects... Are take longer to build, and so there's kind of that that larger spread. But I think some of those stories within those sort of very long careers are are actually quite hopeful in that sense, or or you can look to them for advice for yourself.
1: So, as a more technical question, then, how did you decide to conduct these interviews? I'm assuming there was a variety of, of ways that you kind of had to do it, just by necessity. But was there a kind of a, an ideal setup for how you would be speaking with these people?
0: Yeah, I think definitely meeting these people in person was the best case scenario wasn't always possible, but I would say the great majority of them we were able to do in person. You know, given that we are based in New York, so many significant figures, you know, just looking back in design history, a lot of the design and architectural world converged around New York and MoMA and Philip Johnson. and. You know, there were distinct circles that I think these figures tended to emanate around or were affiliated with, or, you know, they, it's really incredible how smaller the design world was even then. A lot of them knew each other or knew, knew of each other or knew people that knew them, or it's really incredible. So doing them in person, I think obviously, you know, forming a rapport and seeing the the facial expressions of each other as you're speaking, I think all those things really add to the interview. And I think you know, hopefully, you can't tell too much um, which ones were done in person and which weren't. But um, you know, we d- we did have a modest budget, so we did tend to to feature more folks based in America rather than abroad. But a lot of them also happened over the telephone, or um, you know, some of them occurred kind of through an ongoing email exchange, which was really fun to kind of be pen pals for a few weeks with someone like Richard Hollis, who um, you know is very much known for for graphic design and language and and, um, you know, thinking about image and text in such ways and, you know, becoming his pen pal over the course of a few weeks was something that was really special. And yeah, so I think each of the interviews has their own distinct element to them. But basically, whatever medium we could pull off, we did, because as Bryn said earlier, a lot of these folks, you know, we only had that one shot to really make a great interview. And, you know, hopefully all of them turned out really well. So we're we're happy with how they turned out.
2: Yeah. And I was just going to add to that. It was really that range. It was in person, over the telephone, only a few via email. And I think at the beginning, Eileen and I conducted a few of them together, but then just sort of logistically, it made more sense for us to kind of divide and conquer in a sense too. So we, by the end, I think we each kind of, you know, had 10 that we were owning just so we could kind of divvy up and really focus on getting that research and kind of diving into each each person's backstory before we interviewed them.
1: So speaking as well to the kind of breadth of experience that is obviously contained here, a lot of the people profiled um, have some kind of, I think you referred to it earlier as like a wistfulness around certain parts of their career, or alternatively, a certain type of bitterness around certain parts, um, completely understandably. But I'm wondering regarding those things. Did you ever go back and look into other interviews to kind of compare how the people referred to those experiences um, at different times in their lives? Like, say, in Michael Graves' interview, for example, he refers to his loss of the MoMA commission as kind of like a big breaking point where he his firm no longer got as much work. Um, and it was kind of a big downturn for him. And he he seems very sour about it in the interview. I'm wondering or not whether or not, like, you would go back and look at other interviews that had also addressed that topic to see for instance, in the Graves one, but perhaps in any other interview, um, how the interviewee had addressed that issue before and see if there were any interesting comparisons to how those two were done.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think we, we definitely tried to dig up as, as much info as we could, you know, whether it was a review or a news article or a previous interview, but we also kind of wanted to Phrase questions in an open-ended way that kind of, you know, allowed them to speak about things on their terms in a way that maybe they hadn't been asked to before. So for example, one of the questions that we ask, I think nearly all of them is, you know, what's your greatest professional triumph and what was kind of your biggest backset and how did you deal with it? And it's interesting because we have all of these stories in our minds as, as students of design and architecture history. For example, we know about Michael Graves' Lost Commission and, you know, have read all about it. But to kind of phrase it in an open-ended way that way, I think it really allowed them to kind of air out the things that that, that had either affected them significantly or, you know, maybe they hadn't thought about in several years, but now have a different perspective upon. Um, so we really tried to keep it open-ended. And, you know, all of them are so resilient. And, you know, I think all of them also embraced failures as a, as a learning experience. So many of these figures, because design education has evolved and, and is relatively new, a lot of these folks found their ways to design it through their their personal and individual paths. And so they really all embrace um, learning by doing. And yeah, they just all have these kind of great lessons of failures and successes that they were open to, to telling us about.
2: I mean, I think that being said, one thing we were concerned about and Eileen and I talked about throughout the course of the book was sort of those, I forget how we phrased it, but like those sort of legendary stories that people tell that you know, they're going to tell and kind of how you handle that. Cause I think in some cases, those stories come up in the book and we tried to, we didn't edit them out. We kept them in, even if they had been spoken about before, but we always tried to like follow up with a different question or kind of push them in a little bit of a different direction or just kind of add more context. But I think there is something also interesting and valuable about those stories that become the stories that you always tell as a designer or just, just as a person. So I think even even in that, there's kind of something nice about recording those moments again, even if they've occurred before, or maybe they're slightly different this time. I think that story in and of itself is interesting.
0: Right. I guess you could call them like self-identifying anecdotes in a way. But it, yeah, it was really interesting and, and so fun to hear them retell these really famous stories um, themselves. It was just irreplaceable to experience that.
1: Yeah, there's a couple of great parts of these interviews that I'm going to reference really fast. In Denise Scott Brown's interview, she speaks about an early part of her career feeling very aimless and Without structure to her life and kind of relating that experience and then going through a litany of other contacts that she had that are also part of the design community in the book to kind of bring home the community at the time that is also represented by the people interviewed. I think that that's like a huge part of why this book and and merely collecting these stories of, of people of this age is incredibly important given that the community of architecture and design has exploded so drastically. And I don't mean that in a, in a way of inflation. I just mean that it's the, the barriers to entry have lowered simply in, in any type of higher education. Barriers of, ent- of entry have lowered. Of course, the technological aspects are much more accessible. So in the case of doing this book 100 years from now, it might be exponentially more difficult to choose 20, because of just how, of course, also constructions of these legendary figures in the media operate. So you might just simply have more to choose from. And so I, I'm wondering how you situated a lot of the, I don't want to call it advice, but um, how you situated a lot of the responses around technology in the book of how, especially architects refer to either architecture education as being lost because the technology is just out of hand or themselves saying, oh, I don't use a computer. I have someone in my office do that because I wasn't trained that way. Um, So how did you kind of situate those types of responses to contain some type of relevancy, even though, of course, at this point, like they will just, they will be the last generation to experience that until something new comes along? Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think just thinking again, thinking about, you know, like, okay, all these folks were born around the same decade and experienced the same explosions of technology in all of their industries. I think, you know, you think about graphic design and how the computer and and Photoshop and InDesign and Adobe and all of that has, has really kind of redefined and reoriented the whole profession. And then architecture, obviously, the way that computer and you know cad and all of that has has really revolutionized how designers think about form and it's interesting though i mean one of one of the interviewees Beverly Willis was actually a pioneer in, in computer aided drawing and technology and for large scale land use so i think in some cases a lot of You know, some of them were actually really excited about the possibilities. I know. I think Stanley Tigerman was also, you know, saying like the future of buildings will be built by robots and it'll be great and actually safer for for construction workers and things like that. So I think, you know, obviously they all acknowledge that it's changed their work and, and their field tremendously, but I wouldn't necessarily say they were all, you know, antagonistic or, you know, had a certain regard towards it in general.
2: And I guess I would argue that I think, you know, even in 50 years, if someone else is conducting these interviews, I think I think there's just another, like, it seems like all this, change of course, all this change has happened in these last 80 years, but that same amount of change, if not more, is going to happen in the next. So I think, like, we just don't know kind of what those, th- those big shifts will be. But I don't know, I think, you know, whenever I get together with my Thirty-something friends were talking about Snapchat, and (laughs) it kind of keeps coming up. And you think of these things that like younger generations are using, and we might use differently. But I think that uh, tension is is interesting, even if even if like you mentioned in some of the profiles, the technologies maybe not embraced. Some and sometimes it is, and sometimes it's yeah more antagonistic or kind of secondary to their the practice.
0: Yeah, I, I think they embody a spectrum of, of approaches to technology. Um, but it's interesting. I think Brent and I both kind of grew up in an era where, you know, smartphones, we probably got smartphones in college or around that time. So we kind of do remember life before social media and Snapchat and all of that. I mean, we are, you know, print authors, which I think is something that I don't know, maybe that won't even exist in 30 years. But I think there's always going to be massive social change, especially in regards to design. It's it's always going to be about tools and advancement and efficiency and, you know, embracing the latest technology. So I think it's intrinsically a part of design history and and what has been possible to build and envision and, and create in our physical world. But, you know, even in our immaterial world, I think there's so much happening in digital design that is still so nascent. Things like AR and VR, people will probably be writing about that in 80 years and think it's really retro. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I just, I, th- I think it's interesting to categorize the book as a whole, not about architecture or design necessarily, but about the technological advancements of the 20th century, where you have people whose practice has been spread out from before industrial production, <laughs> really, to now, the digital era. So there's there's an incredible wealth of experience and diversity there that I just, I'm very, I'm sure that the that wealth will be reflected in the equivalent number of years in the future. But just to have that this book and this collection of interviews stand testament to that development, I think, is particularly interesting. And just to kind of round things off, because, of course, architects and designers will have some vested interest in this book, but who else might you imagine being in the audience for it? Who would you like to read this book?
0: Right. It's funny. We actually, so we had our first pre-launch kind of book event panel discussion this Monday at The Strand. And just looking out into the audience, I think we were both really excited and pleased to see that it was really a diverse crowd, I think, not only age-wise, but also gender-wise and, you know, profession-wise there were such a, a mix of people. And we really think that, you know, we tried to make this conversation as these conversations that we shared with our interviews, we tried to make them as approachable and, and personal as possible and, and accessible. We think these figures are are so important to not only design history, but just cultural history in general. I think, you know, everyone's life is filled with design, whether or not they realize who designed that trash can or, or pencil or table, what have you. I think, you know, our hope is that anyone will be interested in it, but definitely students, teachers, other designers, people that are just you know even tangentially interested in it, I think they'll they'll all find something that
2: that is um interesting and fun and and hopefully useful in their in their careers for me, yeah, I agree I think the that notion of being accessible was really important to us in writing the book. And I think something that came up a lot in talking about design and design's position with the interviewees as well and and kind of seeing how that's changed and design is becoming much more a part of everyone's life and there's less a barrier to understanding perhaps what a graphic designer does or what an industrial designer does. But I think, yeah, we hope that designers like it and enjoy it and get something out of it just as much as someone who maybe is interested in going into the field and wants to learn more about the practice or get inspired.
1: Well, Eileen and Bryn, thank you so much for joining us on One to One. And we look forward to seeing the next edition of this <laughs> in uh, maybe every 10 years you could do one or the next every 20, 20 years, over eighty. <laughs> exactly. Thank you both so much for joining us.
2: Thank you Thanks for having us.
1: Thanks for listening to our connect sessions one-to-one with Eileen Kwan and Bryn Smith editors of 20 over 80. Danilo Voinov edits the podcast and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of one-to-one new episodes of one-to-one come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google play music. And if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a review. We are at arc sessions on Twitter and you can email us at connect at Thanks again for listening to one-to-one.